I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 132. First off, I want to say that we finally went to our P.O. Box. We have been neglecting it, but we got all of your Get Well cards and some packages and all of that. And so thank you all so much for sending your love and your support. It really means a lot to us. Yes, they were so sweet. And Donna was like, what are all these cards? I was like, they're probably Get Well cards for you. And she was like, what? No, they're for both of us. I was like, no, they're not, which is totally okay. Like, I'm so happy you got them. I'm not like, yeah, but it was so funny that she was like, what little old me? <laughs> yeah, it did not cross my mind. So thank y'all. That was a very nice surprise. Hey, you know who else is getting a nice surprise in the mail? Who? Patreoners. I should have known. Thank you so much. Ariana C. from California. Lauren H. from Mississippi. Amber B. from Kentucky. Amanda N. from Nevada. Naomi L. from New Hampshire. And Janina T. from New Jersey. Thank y'all so freaking much for joining Patreon. We hope that y'all are loving your card with your stickers and all the bonus content that you're getting. So if you want all of that and more, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Also, a lot of people agree with you because uh, I saw a lot of posts about Scientology, Leah Remini, that podcast. Everyone's like... I'm hooked. I cannot believe this. It's almost unbelievable that they have gotten away with it this long. The interviews that they get on this podcast, I'm just like, wait, what? The people, like what they've been through and who they are. And, you know, like one of them is David Miscavige's father. Dang. Well, we know it can't be his wife. Damn. Well, and you know what? Like, I was thinking about doing an episode on Scientology, and last podcast on the left did a really great, I think it was a, a three-parter on it, so good. I learned so much about how it became what it is and some of the ideology and all of that, but I, and I was thinking, well, if they fair game us for it, I mean... What could they really do to <laughs> us? Like, we have nothing, We you know? Yeah. And then I was like... Well, they could, like, bombard us with bad reviews. And I was like, okay, maybe not. But <laughs> but then I'm like, damn, this is what they want, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they interviewed one lady who fought their fair gaming for over 10 years. At one point, they had even gotten her arrested because of, like, planting of evidence. Wow. And so it's just, there's no end. There's no line that they won't cross it's, it's just mind-boggling. Well, and if you think about when I did that scientist guy that, like, he got kind of wrote out of history because of his, like, occult mm-hmm. stuff, he was in there. A lot of people from NASA were in Scientology and all of that. And so it's, like, these really smart, important people are... In Scientology, you know? But it also just proves that no one is truly immune from a cult. Like, it's so easy to say that you wouldn't, there's no way I join a cult. I'm smarter than that. Or I'm, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But at some point in everyone's life, you are vulnerable. Oh, for You've sure. You've been through something, you're going through something, and you're vulnerable. Yeah. But if you didn't hear the episode where we talked about that, it's, Leah Remini and Mike Rander's new podcast called Scientology Fair Game. And Fair Game is basically what they call 
their rule in Scientology to destroy anyone who is speaking out against Scientology in any way possible. Yeah. No holds barred, like, all in, accuse you of crimes, try to get you convicted of crimes, literally everything. Yeah. Stalk you, harass you, physically harm you, death threats, attempts on your life. Like, there is no line that they won't cross. Right. Mm. I do have to listen to it. I thought I wasn't going to do it, but then everyone was posting about it, and I was like, I want it on the discussion, so I'm going to have to do it. All right, enough about their podcast. I'm going to get on to our podcast and tell my story. We've talked about some serious cases of exorcisms and how shocking they can be, but most are pretty old cases, and so we think, well, that doesn't happen now. Well. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I came across a news article on KATV.com, and it was titled, I Could See the Demons. Oh, shit, I'm here for this. Uh Uh-huh. And so, obviously, I devoured every word. So, I want to tell you about the case that that article, as well as several others, covered. Picture it. 2006, Searcy, Arkansas. Amy Stamatis was finishing up her shift at the Baptist Health Medical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. She worked as a med flight nurse, and her last task before she clocked out was to help treat a patient who had been burned. That patient was on a stretcher, and Amy wheeled the patient inside and completed her report. All was good, but then she just started to walk around the halls of the ER as if in a daze, and she didn't know why, but she shook it off because she had been working a 24-hour shift, and maybe she was just stressed. She was tired. Her mind was frazzled. All the things. But later when she was interviewed, Amy said it was as if her mind was just blank. She had forgot how to do her job. And that ended up being her last shift to ever work as a nurse. Oh my God. Because sadly, the strange regression that was happening didn't stop there. Amy had been a marathon runner, but now she couldn't keep her balance long enough to run in a straight line. And worse than that, she began having difficulty making simple everyday choices, like putting an outfit together. I mean, I do struggle on that, but like she literally couldn't make a decision on that. It sounds like she had a a brain tumor or something. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm guessing not, because... Demons, but... Well, you never know. Well, what she thought was that she was experiencing a nervous breakdown. And so, with her medical background, she was like, all right, I'm going to seek treatment, and we're going to get this handled, and I'll be back to normal. So, insert a long timeline filled with doctor visits, psychiatric hospital stays, and different mental illness diagnoses. She was prescribed several different antidepressants, But none of that helped to snap her out of this fog that she was in. And she seemed to be getting even worse and almost spiraling out of control. When she had appointments at the hospital she used to work at, she would end up yelling at her former co-workers and just had weird random bouts of anger. Another more extreme example is when her and her husband were at a family get-together and Amy stripped out of her clothes. What? In front of everyone. Uh Uh-oh. Including her in-laws. Ooh. Yeah. 
That made for an awkward Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, or they were into it. I don't fucking know. Yeah. No kink shaming. Then things got pretty dark on a trip to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Amy and her husband traveled there in order for her to receive some specialized treatment. And while Amy was there, she escaped and was later found by police and her husband. And she was on the edge of a parking ramp that she would have had to climb at least seven stories to get to. Holy shit. Yeah. And so she was high up and she was threatening to jump. Finally, the police and her husband were able to talk her down and she was safe. But not any better. Amy had been hearing voices since she first went into her foggy brain state, and the voices would constantly taunt her to end her life. And that's one of the main reasons she kept seeking different treatments, because no matter what she did, the voices never went away, and they continued to urge her toward dying by suicide. And unfortunately, it seems that seven months later in November, the voices were finally gaining control. Amy was at her house in Searcy, and it was a day just like any other day, until it wasn't. She was on the second story of the house and saw an open window, and just decided that she wanted to sit on the windowsill. Oh no. So she climbed through the window and was sitting there. Oh no. But not for long. The next thing that she remembers was hitting the brick patio. Oh, no. Amy is insistent that she did not jump, but the injuries that she sustained indicate that she did not brace herself for impact. Her back was broken in three places. Oh, my gosh. She punctured both lungs and also broken several ribs. However, none of the bones in her arms and legs were broken. Shit. And because of her broken back... Amy was now paralyzed below the waist. Oh my gosh. Amy had a lot of support from the community, including the downtown Church of Christ in Searcy, and they actually held a prayer service for her after she fell. There was one person who was in attendance who would forever change Amy's life. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And that person was Cindy Lawson. She's a Pentecostal evangelist, and even though she wasn't a member of that particular church, she felt compelled to help Amy. First through the prayer group, and then through hospital visitation. Later, while being interviewed, Cindy said that she could just feel something churning, and that the Lord spoke to her and directed her to go to the hospital to cast the demons out of Amy. And again, Cindy is a Pentecostal evangelist, and she has performed 10 demon castings, which are essentially exorcisms. And as a kicker, if you don't think she is powerful, she also claims to have raised the dead and healed the terminally ill through prayer. Okay, Cindy Lou Who, <laughs> who you think you are? What? Okay, first of all, 10 exorcisms... Let's just say that they're like legit, legit, legit exorcisms. Mm-hmm. But like ten, like like ten worldwide in her lifetime would be a lot for one person to do. You know what I mean? Like, what's going on in Arkansas? I mean, you guys need help. <laughs> Blink twice, y'all. There's no fucking way. Ten. Second of all, I mean, Amy better fucking be able to walk after this. If she can <laughs> heal people. 
Well, hold on. Bring the dead back. <laughs> what, she did chest compressions and like, it's a miracle. <laughs> oh, okay. You know CPR. Cool. No, she was just there, like had the like oxygen thing kinked. And then it was like, yeah. And I let go. Oh, I tripped and unplugged it. Plugged you back in. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, Cindy did go and visit Amy in the hospital. And when she got there, she said that she saw a wide-eyed Amy. And when she looked into her eyes, she could see the demons. Oh, okay. (laughs) Then something like a snarl mixed with a growl rolled up Amy's throat. And she asked Cindy, why are you here? Meanwhile, she just belched. (laughs) Do you feel attacked? I do. (laughs) I mean, if you get the bloopers. (laughs) Right? Carrie has a talent. It's not so hidden. (laughs) Cindy didn't waste any time. She anointed Amy's forehead with oil and then commanded that the demons release Amy in the name of Jesus. They were to come out of her and she was to return to her right mind. And Cindy said that she could feel the spirit of the Lord fill that room to capacity. And it was as simple as that. (laughs) Amy's family noticed a change in her immediately. She didn't show any signs of her previous behavior. And even though Amy doesn't remember the exorcism, she does believe that she was possessed. And she is certain that the medical field could not help her and would not help her. Because they don't understand or believe in possession. What? Mm-hmm. Here's the kicker. Or what, isn't that what you say? Here's the kicker. Mm-hmm. Amy was diagnosed with porphyria. And it's a rare chemical imbalance with symptoms that resemble a lot of what Amy experienced during her possession. Seizures, abdominal pain, mental confusion, anxiety, hallucinations, disorientation, and paranoia. So could all of this possession have been this medical condition all along? Yes. I'm going to go with, yes, a fucking course. Right. Uh, Okay, look, if that's all it took to be like, put the little sign of the cross in their forehead and be like, demons, I command you. Come hither. I mean... The Catholics would be doing that all over the damn place. Right. They'd be like, tell me a secret. Because we're, we're wasting a lot of energy over here. Right. That, like, exor- look, I exorcisms mean, are their exercise. The priests are like, look, it takes us a minute to make the holy water, and we have to use a fuck ton of it. So can you tell me what oil you used? Well, if she's anything like me, she'd have a concoction of essential oils. That's what she did. Got some lavender, some frankincense. I mean, that shit you put on my head when I have a headache sure does work, but. I haven't read anywhere that's like, hey, you can use peppermint to cast out demons. You know, I haven't used it that way yet, but who knows. And meanwhile, she probably got some freaking medication for her piriformis disease that you said she had. What she have? Porphyria. That. She probably got medication and fixed her chemical imbalance, and that's why she got better. Right. Not because... Of Cindy Lawson. Fucking Cindy Lou who? (laughs) Crazy. And if Cindy Lou was so great, why didn't she make her be able to walk again? Because I'm assuming she's still in a wheelchair. She is still in a wheelchair. She still cannot walk. Maybe God didn't tell Cindy to do that. And so she's like, it's above my pay grade. Mm. 
Well, this story was simple and somewhat harmless dealing with that exorcism. But unfortunately, Amy was paralyzed after that fall, which could have maybe been prevented if she was diagnosed earlier. Or she met Cindy sooner. True. Y'all decide. (laughs) Yeah, let us know. I think this might be the first time in like two weeks that me and Carrie have agreed on something. That Cindy really helped her, right, Carrie? (laughs) Just kidding. Y'all could fucking see my face. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You know I'm always going to side on the side of medicine. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, nine times out of ten. All right. Well, I want to now tell you another story about another exorcism case that was not so harmless. And this story will need a trigger warning because it does deal with a child. Picture 2003, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Damn, they're both recent. Yeah. Patricia Cooper, known as Pat, was a 29-year-old unemployed single mother struggling to stay afloat. Her oldest child was an 8-year-old boy named Terrence Cottrell Jr., but everyone just called him Jr. And she also had a 2-year-old daughter. And it's hard for any single parent, but for a parent of a child with special needs, it can be especially draining. Junior had autism spectrum disorder and had been diagnosed at two years old. Every year, his behavior was becoming more violent and difficult to manage. And he was still not very verbal, which added to the frustration. Junior's school had recently informed Pat that she was going to have to find a new school if his behavior continued because he was very disruptive in his class. Mm. Because his go-to behavior was to punch and to kick. All of this weighed heavily on Pat, and she wanted to do what was best for her child, but she was kind of clueless as to what that was, unfortunately. What she knew she could do was pray for a miracle, and that's just what she received. One day at a grocery store, Pat and Junior were fighting and causing a scene. He wouldn't listen, and they caught the attention of the store manager and other customers, of course, but one person noticed something different in the mother-son duo. Pamela Hemphill did not see a fight between family members. She saw an internal struggle in the boy. Pamela approached and offered guidance and assistance. What Pat desperately needed and wanted. But not all advice is good advice, which we will soon find out. I have a feeling that my legs are going to get tired standing on my soapbox with this one. (laughs) Probably. Pamela invited Pat and her kids to attend a church service at the Faith Temple Church of Apostolic Faith. Pamela's husband, Bishop David Hemphill, had founded the church in 1977. It was a storefront church, so in a strip mall kind of thing, and this strip mall in particular was in an area where everything was kind of run down. So the building didn't have AC, they only used fans, and the church's congregation was small, but tight-knit, consisting of only six families, and they held services twice a week. I mean, I know Wisconsin isn't like South Mississippi, Florida, you know, like seriously hot southern states, Louisiana, but it still gets fucking hot in the summer. Yeah, and this takes place during the summer. I'm going to need some fucking air. That's why this whole damn thing takes place, because everybody's fucking hot. (laughs) Well, when everyone saw how Junior's behavior was, like when he would jump around uncontrollably, grunt loudly, and seemingly talk in a language that only he could understand, 
they started to hold special services devoted to helping rid Junior of the devil inside of him. Oh, no. Yes. You know, how about let's provide him with some sort of communication board or teach him sign language or, you know, some way to allow him to communicate in a way that he can communicate, not take the demon out of him. Right. He's trying to say something. Yeah. Oh, my fuck. I'm, like, so angry already. I know. I know. Pamela assured Pat that she, too, had had an exorcism before because she had had the devil in her in the 1970s. What? She flirted with a boy? (laughs) And that was the only thing that healed her was having the exorcism. So this is, like, a surefire way to heal her son, Junior. For three weeks, they had three weekly meetings that lasted anywhere from one hour to two hours. Each meeting consisted of an exorcism, which they called a healing prayer, during which the congregation would pray a whole lot for God to deliver Junior from the spirit that was within him. Then they would sing, and then all the while they would force Junior to lay on the ground. Mm-hmm. They would hold all of his limbs and his head down because oh he God. would start to flail around and kick and try to scratch people, as anyone would, in my opinion. But definitely... Someone with a sensory processing disorder? Yes. Someone with a sensory processing disorder that is, I don't know, I don't know if he's sensory seeking, I would maybe guess, based on him hitting things and all that, but also probably sensory avoiding of all the fucking sound of all these people fucking praying and singing in his ear. Well, Ray Hemphill would sometimes get on top of Junior to hold him down, and he would whisper into his ear for the demons to leave his body. Oh, cool. So whisper and let your breath touch his fucking ear when, again, he has a sensory processing disorder. That gives me shivers down my back, and I... Well, I kind of do have a sensory processing disorder, but holy fuck. Yeah. I mean, can I say sensory processing disorder one more time? Oh my God, y'all, I'm so pissed right now. <laughs> well, the healing prayer sessions didn't work. Well, we'll find that out. These sessions were administered by Ray Hemphill, like I said. He was the brother to Bishop David Hemphill. The thing is, Oh, God. Ray used to be a janitor at a school and had never received any formal religious training. However, his brother David had ordained him and declared that he had a talent for healing people through casting out demons. As you do. Mm Mm-hmm. Pat Cooper put her complete faith in Ray and the church. She truly believed that they knew what was best for her son, and she had started to think that it was demons and not his autism spectrum disorder that caused his erratic and sometimes aggressive behavior. Denise Allison, a neighbor, said that Pat confided in her that during one of the sessions, she had heard demons speaking through Junior, and they said, kill me, take me, kill me, which is shocking because Junior never said more than one word at a time, ever. So this neighbor was like, oh, wow, but did not believe that then because she interacted with Junior and she knew how he was. You know, he Mm -hmm. would knock on her door and say, tickle. And that meant he wanted to play a little bit, you know, and just do whatever. But then he would leave, you know, and he was a sweet boy that every time he went outside, he would hug his favorite tree. That was the first thing he did. Oh, yes. 
Because he is a sweet boy. He just needs to be able to communicate and get what he needs from the environment. Yes. These sessions had taken a toll on the whole family. Pat and her kids were always dressed nicely before and clean. Well, when they started attending the church services, they attended them for three months and especially during the time with the special prayer services, the whole family just seemed drained and became disheveled. Two neighbors of Pat Cooper, Gloria Lloyd and Denise Allison, who I mentioned before, said that there were numerous times that the kids would have unkempt hair and mismatched clothing. And Junior especially seemed to be zoned out. He would sometimes have on two different shoes or no shoes at all. And these Two neighbors also commented on how much Junior disliked being touched at all. So the thought of him being restrained made them feel so sad because they knew that Junior must have felt so stressed and scared. Because if he avoids touch like that and you touch him like that and like literally hold him down, you are sending his body into fight or flight and he is going to fight. Yeah. Well, on August 22nd, 2003, Junior would undergo his last exorcism or prayer service. Again, Junior was forced to lie on the ground, his shoes removed, and then his hands were covered with sheets because he began scratching himself and others. I wonder how hard it was for his mother to get him there. Well, he would throw tantrums at first and everything, but this last time... They got a ride from one of the members of the church, and she said that Junior was checked out. He was just kind of zoned out, and she was like, that's not like him at all. Like, normally he's rocking himself and all of that, and he wasn't doing anything. And she commented to Pat about it, and she said, well, I just woke him up. But, I mean, he's drained. He is beaten down. Yeah. Well... Then Pat, his mother, and two other women held him down by sitting on his arms and legs. Then Ray, who is five foot seven, 150 pounds, laid across his chest to, quote, keep him from hitting his head on the floor because he was bucking. Oh my God. Junior's struggling to break free, his gasp for air, were all taken signs of demons leaving his body. Oh, my God. One of the women would periodically lean and push down on Junior's chest and kind of push upward, like expelling the demons out of his body. And after two grueling hours, Ray stood up, his shirt drenched in sweat. Remember, no AC in August. And one of the members noticed that Junior was very still, too still. And when they looked closer, they saw his face had turned blue. Oh, God. They then noticed that Junior had urinated on himself. Oh, no. But no one noticed that when he needed them to. Junior was supposed to start third grade. He was supposed to have a future. But because people in 2003 still don't understand autism spectrum disorder, as well as other disorders, Junior never had a fighting chance at life. The autopsy revealed that Junior suffered extensive bruising on the back of his neck and died from mechanical asphyxia due to the external chest compression. Oh my god. 
In 2004, a jury found Ray Hemphill guilty of felony child abuse. (laughs) What a fucking joke. He was sentenced to serve two and a half years behind bars. Fuck him. Which is half of the maximum sentence, which is five years. Which is less than Junior's fucking life. Yeah. And he has an additional seven and a half years of probation. Oh, bless it. Mm -hmm. And then he's ordered to pay... Around 1200 in restitution. Insert eye roll. Mm-hmm. And he was also ordered to refrain from performing any form of exorcism rituals until he had received extensive training in them. Yeah. So this case actually brought up a lot of issues because if this had happened at his house, they could have got people for murder. But because it happened in a church... Shut the fuck up. They didn't go for murder because it's under... It's protected because of the religious practice. Uh Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so that's why they went for the child abuse stuff, because that's all they could get. And so it's just kind of like, how many more people have to go through this... This kind of shit. Because, I mean, this isn't the only kind of thing that's happening. Right. In this, you know, I mean, we know that there's LGBTQ people who are undergoing stuff. The same kind of treatment in the Pray the Gay Away fucking camps. Exactly. And it's like, they're covered because it's religious, you know, and it's like, no, that's fucking harmful. And that, it doesn't matter if it's their neighbor who's doing it or their pastor. It's the same fucking crime. This reminds me of the case I did about the girl that was, quote-unquote, like, rebirthed. Yes. That room, yes. The whole way through, I was like, oh, my gosh. I did that in episode 94. So, if you haven't listened, go back. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Poor Junior. And honestly, his poor mom, too, because she it sounds like she was just doing the best she could fucking do. The best she understood, the best she knew how. I mean, she clearly did not understand autism spectrum disorder either. They clearly were not getting the resources that they needed from not only the medical profession, but the school as well, because the school should have been providing resources. He should have been getting early intervention from the time he was diagnosed. Yeah, He should have been getting occupational therapy to help him process his environment. He should have been getting speech therapy to help him find ways to communicate his needs, his wants. He clearly has that capability if he can go to the neighbor's house and say, tickle for play. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy when you think about, like, you talked about you're watching Salem, and it's back in the day, and it's, you know, like, woo People didn't understand shit, and so whatever. But this is 2003. Every single one of those motherfuckers should be in jail for this because we should know better. We do know better. Like, to say, it's not his medical condition. It's demons. Like. No, that's classic autism. Yeah. Oh, God. For someone who's nonverbal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying that every single person who has autism spectrum disorder acts the same way because they all have different needs, just like you and I have different needs. You know, they're fucking human. Yeah, but when I saw what he was sentenced, I was like, you motherfucker. Yes, what a fucking joke. And you 
need to refrain from performing until you get extensive training. In what? what? He Spe- should never do that again. No. You know, like he should, ne- he's not an ordained minister. It's like, okay, look, you know what? I know you killed a fucking child, but like, just, just do better next time. And his brother, the Bishop David, he stands by him 100%. Oh, of course he does. They have, you know, Bible verses to back up what they did. and Oh, of course. They see nothing fucking wrong with no, what they did. No, they said that they delivered him from the demons. And it's unfortunate what happened, but like, you know, they did their duty kind of thing. Okay, let's just say that he did have demons. He didn't. But let's just fucking say he did. How do they know that by him dying, his soul went to heaven and not with the demons? Right. Well, also, I want to say you're saying that he has demons, but y'all are the ones who are torturing him. They, because they don't, they don't have that capacity. They don't see it as torture. Yeah. They see it as they're helping. It's a means to a fucking end. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, look, just fucking stay pissed off because... My story's a doozy, and... Oh, gosh. Trigger warning, my story also involves kids. Oh, heavy story. Well, I'm glad my first one was light... Question mark? <laughs> like, I mean, it was still bad, but on the grand scheme of things, apparently this episode is going to be really heavy. Yes, yeah, it's going to be a heavy one. Yeah, just get ready. So, just to reiterate, my story is very heavy, and... It involves children, so if you need to skip it, if you need to skip details, whatever you need to do, just know that this story is very heavy. With that said, I feel like it's a story that needs to be told because I had never heard of this story. I think I literally Googled, like, random murder stories, (laughs) (laughs) and it was a list, and this was on it, and I was like, I fucking have never heard of this. And I found only, like, four podcast episodes that had covered it in various, like, true crime podcasts. I want to paint a picture because the story happens in the early 70s in Harlem, which is part of Manhattan. And I feel like to understand some of the reactions that happened in Harlem during this case, we kind of have to take it back. But not that far, just about six years And the parallels between this case and what is happening today in America is fucking ridiculous that we still are facing some of the same civil rights issues that they were dealing with in 1964. It's utterly ridiculous. Okay, there was a man, his name was Patrick Lynch, and he was the superintendent of three different apartment complexes. And at one of his apartment complexes, there were always people like hanging out on the stoop. And he hated it. He always wanted to run them off, all the things. And one day, there were three boys that were sitting on the stoop, shooting the shit, doing their thing, teenagers. And these three boys were black. Well, this guy, to get them off of the stoop, starts spraying them with like a water hose And talking about how he's going to wash his stoop clean. Yes. And I said all the things that you can imagine that this fucking asshole said. I wish y'all could see my face right now. That, oh God. So the three guys start like picking up bottles and trash can lids and all this to like 
try to like get them the fuck off of them and like stop spraying water on me, you know, leads to this huge altercation. And there was an off-duty police officer who was in like a bodega or something right next to it. He sees it happening, so he runs to the scene. As he's getting there, 15-year-old James Powell runs into this building and he chases him. And the police officer shoots James Powell three times, killing him. Now, where it gets icky is the police officer says that he's chasing him, showing his badge on his gun, telling him to stop running, and that James Powell has a knife and lunges towards him. That's when he shoots. But all of the witnesses say that that's not what happened. Some people say that the knife showed up in the crime scene later. Mm. But some people also said that James Powell, the the 15-year-old, threw his hands up. Like, he still had the knife, but he threw his hands up and was not resisting arrest or anything. And the police officer shot him. Long story short, the police officer, there was no even reprimand, much less, you know, charges or anything like that. And it led to the Harlem riots of 1964. All in all, it was six days of rioting. 500 people were injured. One man died. 465 men and women were arrested. There was property damage that was estimated between 500 to a million dollars. Oh my gosh. I don't know if that's like today money or then money. Wikipedia didn't tell me that part. But the protest honestly looked a lot like the protests we're having now. Everything that went on with the riots between the people of Harlem and police just led to this distrust. And not that people of color had a lot of trust in police to begin with, just because of how they've been treated and obviously segregation, you know, that whole thing. But this just was a compounding factor. And I want to say really quickly that I got a ton, and by a ton, I mean most, of this information for this story from the True Crime Library. I don't know. It was just so amazing and detailed. And so definitely check that website out. When this story happened, we're talking like March 1972 is kind of when everything happened. Harlem had a lot of the middle class people of color moving out, and it was becoming more dangerous with more violence, drugs, that sort of thing. But during the day, it still had that feel where everybody was outside, all the kids were playing together, people were again sitting on the stoops doing the thing. Everybody knew everybody. You know, you kind of it was a community. Yeah. It was kind of split between African Americans and Hispanic American. I know that's not right, but like people of Latin descent. So whether it be Puerto Rican, Dominican, like all of the things, like they were kind of separated in Harlem, but still all lived together. But on March 9th of 1972, eight-year-old Douglas Owens went out to run some errands for his family, and that was the last time they ever saw him alive. Mm. He was found two blocks away from his house in Harlem on a rooftop, and okay, again, This is a heavy, heavy story, so this is the part where skip forward if you need to. He had been stabbed 38 times. Whoa. His shoes were taken off and sitting beside him. 
there was evidence of rape, and his penis had been cut off. Oh, my gosh. And how old is he again? Eight. <gasps> wow. Mm-hmm. Police looked into it, you know, interviewed for witnesses, interviewed the people who were in Douglas's life, and there was nothing. The case just went cold. Six weeks later, on April 20th, there was a 10-year-old boy who remains nameless. He was found inside a hallway in an apartment building. He, too, was black, and he had been stabbed multiple times. He had been raped. His shoes were found beside him, and his penis was removed, too. Oh, my gosh. But he survived. <gasps> which is why we don't know his name. Yeah. Yes. Not long after he was found, patrol officers were in the area looking, you know, looking and all. And an officer came up on a group of boys playing with his severed penis. <gasps> no. When he came to after the attack and was in the hospital, he was able to give police a description. Now, some of the things I listened to and read said that he wasn't able to give a good description at all because he was so traumatized. He, you know, couldn't remember very many details. But then some stuff I read said that he actually gave a very detailed description, even down to saying that his attacker was right-handed. Wow. So I'm not sure, but the, the gist of it is that his attacker was between... 5'7", 5'10". He was medium, dark skin, slender. He had a mole on his left cheek, and he walked with a limp. And when he introduced himself, he called himself Michael. How, quote-unquote, Michael got this child to go with him was he promised him 50 cents. Oh, my gosh. Which, in today's money, is like $3. So that just kind of gives you an idea, too, of what was going on in Harlem. I mean, and, you know, like I said, the middle class had started moving out. And it was, you know, again, lower socioeconomic status and everything that goes along with that. Yeah. The survivor was able to get with a sketch artist, so they at least had something to go on. But police didn't think that, I don't know if that, well, I don't know if they didn't think or they never thought to think that these two cases were related. Does that make sense? Why would they not think they were related? I don't know. So I don't know if they just were like, yeah, I don't think they're related. Or I don't know if they just never even thought to say, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, did they, I don't think, I don't even know if they had the, oh, maybe they are. Nah. I don't even know if they had that. Yeah. The, that is very distinctive mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. But it's too young black children in Harlem in 1972. It's going to go nowhere. I mean, for sure. This is very reminiscent of the Atlanta child murders. Yes. The people of Harlem were on alert, obviously. And they're like, no, 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 shit's going down. Like, and again, it's a tight knit community. These kids like Douglas, he was going on an errand for his family. So, you know, it's like daylight. It's not like he's going out at midnight. He's eight years old. So, this is happening during daylight hours. So, how is someone brutally attacking these boys and just fucking walking away? 
Especially him in a hallway. A hallway with, you know, bukus of blood. I mean, he's chopping off a part of their body. Mm. It's going to be bloody. Yeah. So how did this person just walk away covered in blood? He had a long trench coat on and a hat. Seems reasonable in the spring and summer. Yeah. Well, in October of that year, a nine-year-old boy named Wendell was playing outside And his mom had just looked out the window, saw him playing, and had yelled at him, like, hey, come upstairs. You know, it's time to come up, dinner, whatever. And she thought he was coming up, but he wasn't. He he never came up. Oh, gosh. And so she went to look for him because, again, they know that two boys in Harlem have been, one, viciously attacked, and one, murdered. She calls police and she's like, I need help. He's, um, he's missing. She gives them a description. They are looking, cruising around, trying to find him. So they tell his mom, Mary Hubbard, he probably just wandered away. He's going to come back. Like, it's going to be okay. But four hours later, they still hadn't heard from him. Mm. About a quarter till 10 that night, there were three boys playing on the roof of a building when they saw a body. Golly. They weren't sure who it was, so they ran down the street, flagged down a police officer, but they were like, this has to be him that's missing. Like, there's a dead body up there. It's little, you know. Yeah. Help. And when police get there, it is, in fact, Wendell Hubbard. Oh, my gosh. So not maybe, not even 12 hours after he disappeared, his mother is already identifying his body in the morgue. That's so sad. So police do what police do. They're canvassing the area, literally going door to door, being like, you had to have seen something. But people are protective. They are Mm -hmm. because they don't trust the police. I mean, again, remember what happened just eight years prior to this, these huge riots and stuff. They just don't trust the police. Yeah, well, and snitches get stitches. Police decide that he probably just, like, wrong place, wrong time, and, like, that's what happened to him. He just happened to fit everything that happened with two other cases. Yeah. So, when they did the autopsy, they found that he had been stabbed 17 times. Gosh. His shoes were beside him, too. And he had been raped, and his penis removed as well. But his penis was not at the crime scene like the first. Some have said that the first victim, Douglas, that his was like almost completely cut off, just kind of hanging. I hate to say this, but like just hanging by some skin. Some stuff made it sound like it, it was completely severed. And then the second victim who survived, his was taken, and so was Wendell's. In March 7th of 1973, so we've a whole year now from the first victim, Luis Ortiz, he was 10 years old. He was Puerto Rican. He was out on an errand for his family to pick up milk and bread from the corner store, and he never came home. Police knew that he had purchased the milk and the bread because the clerk at the store specifically remembered him because he was 13 cents short and he was like you're good just take it oh gosh so it was you know it was something distinct to remember him by like no 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 he came he he bought he bought the stuff 
So we know that somewhere between the grocery store and going home is when it happened. That's so sad. You know, he had to think like, this is my lucky day. Okay, people are good. And then he's murdered. What the fuck? Well, this time, some people did see Luis walking with a person. And so they were able to kind of hone in on the composite sketch. I already want to know if the limp is real or not. Yeah, is he pulling a Ted Bundy? Uh Uh-huh. I don't know. The witnesses describe this man pretty similar to how the second victim, you know, the survivor, described him. They said that the suspect was Hispanic, between 30 and 40 years old, slender, about 5'7 to 5'10, that he had a lot of acne scars and black marks on his chin, and it said possibly a mole on his left cheek. So the sketch was able to be improved, though, because you have more people basically corroborating one another. Finally, at this point, police are acknowledging that these cases could be connected. Oh, Lord. You know, and people are pissed. 500 people protested at the police station saying, like, we want more protection. Our children are being taken from us. Help us. And, of course, they're like, no, 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 we're going to give you, you know, we're going to give you more protection. We're going to watch over the schools, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, no, we want the killer. Like, find who did this. And at this point, like, the kids are terrified. They're scared to go to school. They're scared to go on errands. They're scared to play outside. This is their friends. Mm. One parent even said that she found a knife under her son's pillow because he was so terrified. And that, yeah, and that another boy told his parents that he wishes he was a girl so he would be safe. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine being a kid during all of this. I know. Well, and a teacher said that this girl had like written a story about this man killing boys and cutting off their fingers because they didn't really understand. Like, well, yeah. like, what did that mean, you know? And that some boys, like, on the playground would even, like, act out the murders. And, you know, a boy would be limping around, like, to try to scare his friend. And it's like, they're just trying to cope and understand and deal with it in the best way they know how. Yeah. This fourth grade class at PS 145 made a videotape that they put out on the public service network so that they could teach each other about stranger danger and, you know, don't go with somebody you don't know. How how to avoid becoming another fucking victim. Yeah. The children are actually who gave this serial killer their nickname. And it's almost, I hate to use the word comical because it's not, it's a fucking serial killer, but you can see it from a child's eyes, you know, but they dubbed him Charlie Chopoff. The community even collected $600 for Luis Ortiz's funeral because his family couldn't pay for it. Oh. His family, who was from Puerto Rico, couldn't deal with his death and eventually moved back to Puerto Rico because they just could not stay in New York any longer. Two weeks later, police get a call from a lady that says... So, there's this dude that lives here, and he looks a whole lot like your composite sketch. She told police that his name was Erno Soto, 
and that he had actually recently been admitted to a psychiatric institution. She said that he was known to be strange and violent. So officers go to question Soto. They interview him, some cousins, even his wife. And they're all like, well, we haven't seen him since November. And this is in March. But they told police, like, no, he's like 6'1". He doesn't really fit your description. And so police just were like, okay, well... Nobody's seen him. He doesn't fit the description. Okay, we'll just chalk that up to another, you know, whatever. Finally, in April, police broadened their search and actually made a task force. They said that they had been through 9,000 police records, knocked on thousands of doors, and had distributed 1,500 flyers. They had questioned 150 suspects, and none of them panned out. They had even consulted with Interpol to see if there was anyone in Interpol with this MO. They got one hit in Interpol, and it was a man in Australia with blonde hair. What? Yeah, and it's like, okay, look, you're not going to find shit in Interpol. This is someone who knows the area, knows the in and outs of the alleys and the what what have you. They know how to blend in. Mm -hmm. It's not... A blonde Australian, I can promise you, he would immediately stick out if he was talking to some of these kids in Harlem. I feel like even the kids of Harlem would be suspicious of him even before the murders. Well, Crocodile Dundee did not have a trouble in New York City when he went. I don't even have words for that. Did you not watch that movie? No. Oh, God. There was a man named Dr. Harvey Schlossberg. He was a director of psychological services and actually taught criminal justice at St. John's University. And he worked with police some, and he offered basically to create a profile. And remember, this is at the very beginning of, I mean, we've seen Mindhunter. You know, think about the stage at which understanding serial killers and developing profiles and all of that was kind of coming to fruition. And so this is still pretty new. He developed a profile, though, and he said that the killer was probably psychotic. (laughs) (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) I mean, damn, I could do that. I don't have a degree in it. (laughs) He's probably a bad man. He's probably psychotic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say a name with Charlie Chopoff. He's pretty much psychotic. Damn. <laughs> okay, let me get back to this insightful profile. <laughs> no, no, it really is. Okay. He said that he was probably psychotic and afraid of women, but also disturbed by his own latent homosexuality. Which would explain why he removed the genitalia so that he could cope with his homosexual desires by, in his twisted brain, removing the genitalia to make them female. He also thought it was significant that two of the murders happened on almost the same day. The first one was March 7th, and then the following year, that murder was March 9th. So he deduced that perhaps... Something about this date angers or triggers the killer. 
whether it be an anniversary of something or, you know, what have you. There's something that happened. He then goes on to say that the killer almost is like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, that he can be quiet, lovable, nice guy who typically didn't have trouble with this facade of, again, being the nice guy, hiding the anger, etc. But when triggered, would fly off the handle into psychotic episodes, acting out. In August of that same year, a woman who had been out walking her dog came home and on the sixth floor of this apartment building found the body of another young black male. She, of course, immediately calls police. But this body was a little different. He was identified as Stephen Cropper. He was only seven years old. Right off the bat, it's noticeable that his body's positioned differently. It's more in like a sexually suggestive position. And his shirt was yanked above his head and his pants were pulled down. Stephen was actually killed by a slash to his main artery in his elbow. There had been an X carved into his chest, and some say it was so bad that it basically disemboweled him. Oh, God. And if I remember correctly, it's, of course, I don't have it in my notes. I I think his shoes were taken off, but they weren't, like, beside him, like, positioned like in the other cases. And his genitalia was intact. And there were no signs of sexual assault. Some things I read said that police didn't really think that this murder was connected to the other boys. But other things I read said that they did believe it was connected, but that there was still a chance this was some form of a copycat. But for the most part, they believed that it was connected. On August 21st, police get a call from a lady that says, Hey, uh, there's a dude here for an interview for a job. But he looks a lot like your sketch. Is he sketchy? Oh, my God. So police get there as quick as they can, and they bring him in for questioning. While he's there, word gets out, and another mob comes to the police station. Oh, gosh. They wanted blood. I mean, they had even made a noose from clothesline to, like, hang him. Like, they were like, this is him. Give him to us. He's ours. Well, police had done their job and found out that no this actually isn't the guy like he had a rock solid alibi for basically all the murders and so police can't get him out of the police station at this point now because they have this mob of people and so they're like how the fuck do we get him out so they actually sent out a decoy like pretended to be this guy leaving And then had that guy dress up as a police officer and put a police officer in civilian clothes so that he could, like, escort out Mm -hmm. a perp when really it's him in police clothes. You know what I mean? Like, it was a total, like, tricky loo on the mob outside. Right. Because police had told them over and over and over again, guys, it's not him. They did it in Spanish and English. Because, I mean, all of Harlem, there were no boundaries. Like, they were, like... These are our children, and we want someone to burn for this. And police are like, no, this isn't him. Okay, so also in August, there was a man named Daniel Olivo. He had actually been arrested because he sexually assaulted a five-year-old boy 
in the park. Whoa. And he had, like, coaxed the kid to come away with him because he offered him to, like, go play ball with him. Golly. Oh. Well, the kid broke free and ran to his dad. And Olivo hid in the bushes, but the dad found him. And they basically, citizen arrested him and kept him there until police came. Hell yeah. Well, he was 5'7", dark-complected, dark hair, and had a lot of acne scars. Oh. And he walked with a limp. Oh, oh shit. It wasn't put on. Or was it? They sent him to the hospital for a psychiatric evaluation just to see if his mental status, he could basically stand a trial, etc. But as police did more digging, they realized, oh, well, he's a shitty human being, and he molests children. Oh, my gosh. But... He's not our serial killer. What the hell? Okay, so now we're at May 24th, 1974. A nine-year-old Hispanic boy was running errands for his family when he was attacked. His attacker was arrested, and guess who it was? Olivo? Er No. Erno Soto. Remember him? (gasps) Yes. Well, when he was arrested, he was clearly in some sort of... Psychotic break's not the right word, but he was very disorganized mentally, and so they sent him straight to Bellevue for an evaluation. Well, when detectives from the 7th Precinct, which is where all of the Harlem murders were being handled, when they heard about it, they took some of the witnesses to Bellevue. And Soto was actually identified as the man that they had seen talking to Steve Cropper, the seven-year-old. The seven, yeah. When police talked to Soto about it, he immediately confessed to killing Steve Cropper. And they're like, okay, like, case closed. Like, we fucking got him. Mm -hmm. Because if he did that one, he did them all. But if you remember, Steve's case is the one that was a little different. Different. And they were like, okay, but why is he different? Was he caught in the act? It was in this hallway. So did he not get to complete his ritual Because he was about to be caught, which is why the shoes weren't in the right place. But he did more. Well, but different. Because the other bodies had 17 and 38 stab wounds. True. But it was by a knife versus, like, a razor blade. Yeah. So there was a lot of, like, is he any? You know? Yeah. So there was a lot of people that were like, he's the guy. He isn't the guy. So is he the guy? I don't feel like he's the guy. Police do some digging into his background, and they find out that Soto and his wife had actually been separated for a few years. And they ended up reconciling, but when he, like, goes to reconcile with her, he finds out that while they were separated, she actually had a child with a black man. Oh, shit. Okay, he's the guy. He's the guy. So, they're Hispanic, and now she has a child with a black man. Soto had accepted it for quite a few years. But as his acceptance started to falter, so did his mental health. I mean, are we calling being a racist a mental illness? No, you're just an asshole. Okay, I was just wondering. No, 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 no. No, his mental health devolved. Like, he started having very erratic behavior with bouts of violence 
He spent 11 years in jail for various things, from narcotics to burglary. He had an addiction to heroin, but he had also been in and out of psychiatric facilities. I think I forgot to say this whenever I talked about when they first were looking into him. They ruled him out in part because he had actually been in an institution at the time. But now they find out that when he was in the institution, he got weekend passes. Oh, shit. And everywhere those murders took place, like around you know the area, he had family in those areas. So, mm. stands to reason that he would know yeah, how to kind of dart in and out. Police are putting the pieces together of he has a wife that has had a son with a black man. And when these attacks were happening, the son would have been about eight years old. Mm. How old were the victims? All that age, like around that age. Exactly. And so, was he killing his stepson over and over and over again, essentially. The problem was the second victim, the one that survived, didn't ID him. So he was in a mental facility getting help during the first few. Yes. But when those employees were like kind of pressed for information, they were like, well, okay, he did leave sometimes without permission. And, yeah, he had those passes, too. So, there's definitely a chance that he could have done it. Okay. Also... Was he being treated, though? Like, was he responding to treatment? I need you to play doctor. No, he's, he's, he's like, at a place where he's just being housed. Like, he's oh, just... Okay. It's not like he's, like... No, 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 no. Okay, okay. No, the picture fucking girl interrupted. Okay, okay. God, I love that movie. And when he was institutionalized, it was because he was having religious delusions and had become really violent. And he had been discharged from the hospital on April 23rd. And he was supposed to, like, keep in contact, but he didn't. And then he got recommitted in 73. And so in between those two is when some of the murders happened, too. Okay. Okay, so... I need a murder board. I need to plot this all out. I know. It's very complex. Because I really didn't think he did it. You know, I'm like, oh, he didn't do all of them. He just did the last one. But then when you said his wife had mm-hmm. the baby, I was like, oh, no, never mind. Because that's like, that's motive to some people, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, oh, he did it. But then, you know, there's still that sliver of me that's like, but did he? Anyway, go ahead. Well, when he confessed, though, he told police that... God told him that he needed to cut the genitals off of boys. Oh, well, okay. But he didn't. Okay, so he only confessed to exactly. Cropper. Yes. Okay, and his was not cut off. Exactly. Okay, okay. Well, Soto ended up basically recanting, and he was actually found not guilty by reason of insanity. What? Yeah, and basically sentenced to spend the rest of his life in a mental institution. So they could, like, they didn't find him, like, criminally. I don't really get it, but basically I, he's not going to jail because, like, he did it, and they know he did it, but because of his mental illness, instead of going to jail, he's going to an institution. 
Yeah, but why can't they find him guilty? I don't know. I'm not really sure. And like they are calling it like an acquittal. So I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I'm sorry. I, I wish I knew legal mumbo jumbo better than that. Please, lawyers, anyone help. Yeah, because that perturbs me. Okay, so he's actually, as far as we know, still in an institution somewhere. We don't actually know. What? And the murders of the other boys are still unsolved. Police think that he did it, but they don't really know because he didn't match the height description. He didn't have a limp, and the surviving victim didn't ID him. But his skin color is similar to how he was described and they said that when he was like really in his delusions or on heroin that like he walked almost like he had a limp because he was so like jittery out of it i guess i don't know it was so like you know if you're like talking to hallucinations and what have you it almost looked like he had a limp yeah I mean, I don't know. I'm really torn as to whether I think it's an easy it's easy to pin it on him. And when you Google Charlie Chopoff, it's like synonymous with Soto. Like it's everything pops up about him as well. But it's kind of like the Atlanta child murders. It's like no, he was never actually convicted of those murders, but it's just assumed that he did it. Yeah. I'm not saying whether he did it or not. I'm just saying that he's never in a court of law been convicted. Right. Just like Soto has never, in a court of law, been convicted of these child murders. Or even the one that he did do. True. But this is where it gets weird. This is where it gets weird. I know. Soto's brother, Pedro, got into an argument with their father about his arrest and said that he basically did these murders and got arrested because their father was a bad father and what he did to him. And Pedro stabbed and killed their father. And he went to prison for the homicide. Whoa. So it could be. So it's like, okay, did Pedro murder their dad because their dad raped Arno in his childhood? And does that explain the rapes of the boys and the removal of the genitalia and the fact that the boys were around eight years old and black have to do with the fact that his wife, when they were separated, had a child with a black man. I don't know. I mean, you can see how the psychology adds up, but then it's like, but the surviving victim didn't ID him. But some stuff says that he even, I mean, said things about him, like I said, right-handed, bad breath, mole here, you know, all these things. But then other stuff was like, no, it was really vague. All I know is that these murders are still unsolved. Wow. Okay, so what do you think? Is he the killer? I don't know. I know. it's It really could, again, I can totally see the psychology behind it of why he is the one. Mm-hmm. I feel like anybody with a true crime background would be like, oh, he, okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay, I see the connection. But then on the other hand, it's like, but. Casting a wide net to try to make him right. fit that mold. I know my knee-jerk reaction was like, he didn't do the other murders. He did this one. But then, when again, when you said his wife had 
a baby. And when he confessed in his religious delusions, he said that God made him do that. Yeah. So if he was having trouble still reconciling in his brain the sexual trauma from when he was a child, and whether he's heterosexual or homosexual, and how that manifested with this stepson, you know, it was almost like the, the, the trauma was too much. Yeah. But why did it take eight years with that kid to happen? I don't know. I feel like there's so much to say about this episode, but also nothing to say. Because it's all been said. We need to just do better. Yeah. 100. We need to accept people who are different than us. Even if you can't understand it. It's not your business. Right. And I guess that's how we should end. I mean... I know we both want to get on soapboxes and say all the things, which we did kind of throughout the stories, but we are still experiencing in 2020 things that they had to deal with in 1964 and 1972. That's not okay. People with disabilities are still dealing in 2020 things that happened in 2003 that should not have happened even then. Right. None of this should have ever happened. We need to do better. And remember... Creep it real and And don't don't get scared. scared.